Welcome to Ottawa Valley Community Church, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share His love. Uh, so here we are, we're into our third uh, message in our Advent series. We're celebrating the nature of, of Jesus and what he's done as our Savior. We're celebrating Jesus our Savior. And in that, in that over the five weeks of Advent, we really have uh, five big ideas that we're exploring. Uh, the first week of Advent is always us sort of digging into and, and wrestling with the reality of our need. A community longing for God. And so we go back to the book of Isaiah or elsewhere in the Old Testament and we look forward towards the coming of Jesus and feel what those people felt in the darkness and recognize that our world is a world of darkness and that people are longing for the light. So we call the light. We say, Jesus, come. And we remember what it is to be people who need him. Last week, we looked at the humanity of Jesus. Uh, Pastor Ivan spoke talking about his imminence, his nearness, how Jesus longs to draw near to his people and, and how he can identify with us in our struggle and in our suffering. This week, we're going to look at the divinity of Christ, what it means that this little baby Jesus was actually God Almighty. Uh, next week, we're just going to enter into the story with the children. They're going to share it. Pastor Ivan has a really fun way of, of telling the story, and we'll just walk through it like that. And then Christmas Eve, Eve, we're going to look at what it means that Jesus is our king, what it means that he is sovereign, what it means that he's our leader. And that's what we're going to be looking at over the next um, few weeks. Um, our text this morning is from Luke uh, chapter uh, 2, and we're going to really look at the story of the virgin birth and take out the meaning of it. But where I want to start in us engaging with that is Luke, looking at Luke uh, chapter 1 to 5, because we want to understand the purpose of the book of Luke and why he wrote it, and just pick up something from those very first few verses uh, before we go into the story of the virgin birth. Reads like this, many of us have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an account, an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. This is a letter written to a specific person. So you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. So Luke is... Uh, lived in the culture. He's seen uh, the people uh, come alive with the knowledge of Christ. They've seen, he's seen them become saved. He's seen them uh, be transformed. And he's realized that the people have taught, been taught some things. The people have learned some things. There's the story of Jesus. And as you know, when an event happens and the story spreads from person to person around the world, it kind of shifts and it kind of changes and it becomes kind of muddy and kind of cloudy. Have you, any of you ever played that game? You used to play in youth group. It's called telephone where you whisper something into the first kid's ear, then you whisper it into the next person's ear, and the next person's ear, and the next person's ear, and by the time you get to the end of the line, it can be a little bit of a different story. Uh, that's what Luke is doing. He's, he's hearing the gospel go out, but realizing, I need to make an account that is certain. You've been taught some things, but we need to make these things certain. We need to make these things uh, kind of rock solid. So Luke goes about and he investigates. Uh, Luke was living, uh, you know, in the time of Paul. 
He was uh, going back to Jerusalem. He was traveling all over Asia. But in his time in Jerusalem, we see it's fairly clear that he was able to basically interview uh, people who were alive uh, when Jesus died on the cross, people who witnessed that with their own eyes, uh, people who had talked to Mary. We're certain that Luke interviewed John, who uh, became the caretaker of Mary when Jesus uh, was, was resurrected and, and went to heaven. Somebody had to take care of uh, Jesus' mother, and, and we remember the story where it was uh, John who was given that task, that responsibility handed over. So uh, Luke probably interviewed John and heard the stories of Mary. And so what he did was went about to try to make these things firm, try to make them solid, and to try to give an account uh, that is a little bit scientific, a little bit historical. And we see some really interesting things in the words uh, that he uses here as he uh, begins to unpack this. He says, I want to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. That Greek word uh, is the same word that is sort of used uh, when orders have been given to a soldier or a messenger, and that messenger runs like across the empire uh, to give orders to a general who's fighting a battle in the north or fighting a battle in the east. And that soldier runs through snow and hail and bandits and mountains and all kinds of journeys to get there, to take those orders from that general, deliver them with perfect clarity uh, to the general who received it, and then that person would take that message and carry it back through the hail and the mountains and the snow and the storms back to see there and say, what you have ordered has been fulfilled. What you have ordered has been fulfilled uh, to perfection. Delivery is complete. Your orders have been carried out. And so that's the word that Paul is, or that Luke is using here to draw up an account of the things that have been brought to completion. And then in that second uh, spot in verse four, it says, "So that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught." So you may know the certainty, in one of his sermons, I'm stealing from him, I want to let you know that. Uh, that word asphalion is uh, the same word that's used in Acts chapter 5, 23. We found the prison securely locked and guards standing at the door. We found the prison asphalion. That those ideas that you may know the certainty of the things You've been taught. You know things in a certain way. You know them uh, in, in a way that you've you kind of heard them here, you've heard them there, and these truths are kind of floating around in your mind and floating around in your consciousness. That's not enough. That's not the right way to know them. There are some ideas that you need to know with certainty. Now, mature Christianity has to leave space for tension. It has to leave space for change. It has to leave space for mystery and the unknown. But some things are meant to be rock solid. As John Piper says, some things are meant to be clouds, but some things are meant to be mountains. Some things are meant to be clouds, but some things are meant to be mountains. And you have probably laid out on the grass one day just looking up at the sky, looking at the clouds, and you're saying, oh my, isn't that a nice donut that I see up there? 
I sometimes tend to see food. Does anybody else see food when they look at the cloud? Speaks to a little sin in my heart. Uh, um, you see other things. Maybe you see a car. This is an image of a, of a horse. And this is actually so much like a horse, I can hardly believe it's not digitally created. It might be. I just stole it from the internet. I have no idea where it came from. But we know that there are things that are like that, things in the Christian journey that are like that. Concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son of Man. We don't know all the details about the end. Regarding the Spirit, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with those who are born of the Spirit, John 3.8. There's mystery about God's sovereignty and his uh, ability to move the history of the world to the conclusion he wants to move it to. But somehow, our little old prayers matter. It's a mystery how a free will and sovereignty and all that works together, and people try to tie that one down and answer it clearly. But I think it's safe to say there's mystery. There's the mystery of his incredible love for us, yet somehow there is pain and suffering and brokenness in our relationships and in the things of the world. Some things are for us uh, like clouds. And it's okay that God's made the world that way. It's okay that God has made the world big enough and mysterious. It speaks to his majesty and it speaks to our minesty, our smallness, right? It speaks to how small we are, just our limitations. But... In his love, he does not just leave us in the clouds. He does not just leave us with uncertainty. Um, There are some things that are meant to be wrestled with, but some things that are meant to be solid and unmoving. Some things, as Luke said, were meant to be asphalion, locked in, locked in. Uh, These things should be like mountains. In the landscape of your life, in the landscape of your beliefs, in the landscape of your theology, what are the mountains that you can count on? The things, when you look out at the world, these are the things that are massive and strong and unmovable. There are things that have happened, and that's what Luke is trying to get to us. There are things that actually happened, things that have been revealed. And Luke, as the author, is speaking to you, excellent Theophiluses and saying, I don't want you to miss that which is certain and that which is firm and that which is true. I don't want you to miss that. Um, our time of knowing things uh, in, in ways that are thin, there, there's a lot of that in our lives. We do know some cloudy things, but you do not miss or want to miss the things that are solid. And that's what that language means, that you may know the certainty of the things that you're, you've been taught. Uh, as, as Christians, we really experienced this uh, during the pandemic. There were all kinds of people among us that, that you know, had kind of maybe a fuzzy idea of what their commitment to church meant. Maybe a bit of a fuzzy idea of what it meant to uh, belong to the body of Christ. Maybe fuzzy ideas about truth and sin and right and wrong and who God is and who Christ is. And when the wind came, those cloudy ideas shifted and were reshaped. When the wind of culture blew through, those ideas changed into something else. And and many, many people were blown away uh, during that time. So what we want to do is we want to take the things that are important and lock them in. Uh, Something like the divinity of Christ. 
Our understanding of that and the implications of it our thing is something that is meant to be a mountain and not a cloud. Locked down, certain, unshakable, and unchanging. Safe from being stolen from your head, safe from being changed by the winds of culture, safe from ceasing to be what they are or becoming unimportant or becoming irrelevant. They are meant to be locked down and secure. And so when we come to Luke chapter 1, uh, verses 26 and 27, uh, just that simple truth that's embedded in the heart of the text that we read earlier today when we lit the Advent candle. God sent an angel, Gabriel, to Nazareth, to a town in Galilee, uh, to a virgin. We want to notice something from uh, that context. We want to notice something from the book of Luke we want to notice who the actor in the story is. If you want to have something solid uh, to pin down, something solid to wrestle down in your life and say, this is something that I can trust, we want to trust the idea that God is the author of the story. And where we're going to get to is this idea that God is the father of Jesus. And we're going to see why that matters. But if you look just at the book of Matthew and the book of Mark, uh, Matthew uses the word God 45 times. Mark uses it 44 times, smaller gospel. Matthew and Luke are about the same size, but Luke uses it 115 times. He uses the word God. The word Lord, Matthew uses it 25. Mark uses it 17. Luke uses it 83 times. Luke wants us to know that God is the center. Tim, God is the actor in the story. And when we look at it, we just see repetition after repetition of the use of that word. Uh, what is that sort of solid mountain in the writing of the book of Luke? Zechariah was serving as a priest before God. Gabriel said, I stand in the presence of God. Uh, your son, John, will turn many to God. Gabriel was sent from God. Uh, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth. Mary, you have found favor with God. The Lord God will give you a son. Your child will be the son of God. Nothing is impossible with God. Mary sings, my spirit rejoices in God. Zechariah opens his mouth, blessed be the Lord God. The angels announce to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest. Jesus is presented at the temple and blesses God saying, thanks be to God. Uh, and at the end of the Christmas story, we see Jesus is left uh, increasing in the favor of God. You get what Luke's on about here. God is doing something. And if that's not enough for you, uh, we look at the word Lord. Zechariah and Elizabeth walked in the commandments of the Lord. There appeared an angel of the Lord. Your son will be great before the Lord. He will make people ready for the Lord. Elizabeth conceives and says, see what the Lord has done for me. Uh, the angel says to Mary, the Lord is with you. Blessed is she who was spoken to by the Lord. And Mary sings over her son, my soul magnifies the Lord. And on and on and on it goes. God is the actor. God is the director. God is the mover. God is the shaper in the story. And Luke wants us to have that rock-solid foundation. So when we get to uh, this incredible moment, and we're just going to read this text again, looking for the word God, looking for what God is doing in the midst of the story, 
Uh, we want to just hear the power and the presence and the majesty of God moving in this moment and moving in this situation. Luke chapter 1, 26 to 38, we're just going to read uh, excerpts as we go. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. And you are to call him Jesus. How will this be, Mary asked, jumping ahead. Verse 34, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. God sent the angel to a virgin. The virgin's name was Mary. You'll conceive and give birth. How will this be since I'm a virgin? We just see that Luke is wanting us to really understand uh, that this child is not just a human child. The angel answers, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so that the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And here we have the Trinity involved in the birth of Jesus. The Holy Spirit will come on you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Yahweh, God Almighty, God the Father. And the child to be born will be the Son of God. This is not just a human baby. This is the Son of God. So why does that matter? Why does the virgin birth matter? Many, many people in, in liberal Christianity have just said, that's just a miracle that we, we just can't believe. We, we're just going to take that one, and we're going to imagine that Mary kind of got pregnant, and they made up a story around it. But Luke went, and he interviewed people. He talked to people. He talked. Um, it's possible that he talked to Mary. We don't think it's all that likely, but we know that Mary had to have told the story to the disciples and told the story to John. Um, Mary, uh, when you know, as I know, when you're interviewing somebody, when you're talking to somebody, for the most part, you can make a pretty good read on whether they're telling you the truth or not. Luke wants us to know that this child was conceived by the Holy Spirit, uh, the power of the Most High overshadowed, and this virgin gave birth to a son who would be called the Son of God. And so why does it matter? Well, if Jesus is God, then there are some things that can be mountains in our life, that can be mountains of belief inside of us, that can be things on the landscape of your faith, things on the landscape of your journey that just simply won't shift. And, and here's what they are, and we're just going to unpack them one by one. One, if, if Jesus is God, then you can trust in his imminence. Another way of saying that is you could trust, as Pastor Ivan said last week, you could trust that he is interested in the small things. He is interested in the small things of me. He is interested in the small things of your life. He is interested in the details. Uh, the very hairs on your head are numbered. This big and mighty and powerful God is interested in you. He draws near. Uh, you can believe that his sacrifice is pure enough. 
If Jesus was God, you can believe that that sacrifice was pure enough. If Jesus was God, you can believe that sacrifice was big enough. And if Jesus was God, you can be completely dependent on him for salvation. You know that you don't need to do anything to accomplish it for yourself, and you can't. So let's just look at the scriptures. If Jesus is God, then we can trust that he is near. Uh, The author of Hebrews uh, knew this. He said this, he said, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, how many of you have ever been up against a bureaucratic institution, uh, the government, your school board, uh, your hospital, uh, your town, whatever it is, and you felt like, man, the person in charge of this, the bureaucracy, uh, that group of people that kind of run that show, they, they just do not know me. They just can't even see me. I'm just a, a little pipsqueak down here. They don't care about me. They don't care about my needs. How do we make a change? How many of you have ever felt that? Felt that, right? You feel like, I, 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 can't, I can't gain the attention of this. this. This machine is so unfeeling and uncaring. Because God came and was born into a tiny little baby. You know that he will, and the theological word is he will condescend. He came down. He came down to you. There is no part of your life that he is not interested in. There is no prayer that you can pray that he will say, Yeah, no big deal. He cares about you. And we see it in in the man Jesus. In John 13, uh, 4 and 5, when Jesus is gathered with his disciples and he he who's taken up the nature of the servant, as it talks about in Philippians 2, uh, he came and he poured water into a basin and he wrapped a towel around his waist and he got down on his knees and the savior of the world, the creator of the universe washed his disciples' feet. And God washed his disciples' feet. And God wants to wash your feet Uh, through the life of the church, through us, through ministry. But his heart uh, relationally with you is to get his hands dirty in your life. He is not too big, too holy, too distant to draw near to you. The second thought, the second idea that's really important to us as we understand that Jesus is uh, God is to understand the purity of Jesus and who he was. It's a, another important theological idea is that the sacrificial system, uh, when a gift was to be given to the Lord to make atonement for the sins of the people, they would go out into the fields and the flocks and they would look for a lamb to sacrifice that would be a spotless lamb, a lamb that was white, a lamb that didn't have marks on it, a lamb that didn't have defects, a lamb that was perfect. If Jesus had been born uh, just like you and me, Uh, of human descent, 
Could you say that there was anything of perfection about him? Raise your hands if you got the perfection thing nailed. Right? Nobody's raising their hands, right? But there is something about Jesus that is the perfect spotless lamb. When we see uh, 1 Peter, again, this is Peter uh, speaking. He's saying uh, this. He says, you were ransomed from the futile ways that you had inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And even John recognizes this about Jesus when he, he comes walking by and, and John is baptizing uh, by the Jordan. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What I, what I know in, in my heart as, as I share this is that there are some of us uh, in this room maybe one or two or, or, or more, or maybe there's somebody on the stream, that your whole life you have, you have been called, you have felt like, I want to give my life to God. I want to, I want to become a Christian. I want to trust in his salvation. I want to trust in the work he's done. But there is something inside of me, uh, something in my history, something in my story, that I just can't quite bring myself to believe that he could forgive. I can't quite bring myself to believe that his sacrifice could blot that stain from my life. And I want to tell you, he is a perfect lamb. He is a perfect lamb. And his power to absorb the sin of your life, because he is not just a man, because he is God, his power to absorb the sin in your life, and the sin, your sin is infinite. If you imagine uh, those old ads with bounty towels, the quicker picker-upper, four times more absorbent than, than that which you uh, bought at Walmart, the sins that Jesus can absorb, Jesus can absorb the sins of the Holocaust. Jesus can absorb the sins of every human being that has ever walked and talked on the earth. Everything that you have done, every piece of brokenness in your heart, he is clean enough and pure enough to take it upon himself, to take it to the cross and to pay that price for you. Jesus was not just a man, he was the Son of God. And he could carry your sin and he can wash your life clean because he loves you. That idea must be like a mountain in your life. That is not a cloud that can be blown away by a struggle that you have from day to day. That is a mountain of truth that is meant to hold you. His redemptive power. You need to know this. And similarly, if Jesus is God, we can believe his sacrifice is big enough. You can believe that sacrifice is big enough. Uh, John uh, points us uh, to that. Sorry, I've got the wrong reference there. In John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. Jumping to verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
The word that spoke creation into existence. Jesus who existed before the world was made in perfect fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit who hovered over the waters of chaos. That Jesus who existed before time became flesh and dwelt among us. The hugeness, the vastness of the God who created the cosmos became that little child. And because God so loved the world, he gave that son. We've heard this verse so many times. You've got to understand, God loved the world. He gave that son of infinite size and infinite vastness and infinite value. He gave that son so that you would not perish, but you would have eternal life. That gift is big enough. And and you might be wrestling with the question, if Jesus is God, then can you uh, believe that his sacrifice is big enough uh, for all of the sins of humanity? Can one man suffering for a few hours on a cross, 2,000 years, can that be enough to deal with my suffering? Can that be enough to deal with my sin? Can that be enough to deal with the sins of humanity over century after century after century after century? The answer is yes, he can. That sacrifice is big enough because that life is worth infinitely more than any life that has ever been and all lives that have ever been combined. The life of Jesus, because he is God, is a life of infinite value. If you take every human, man, woman, child, every beautiful creature created on the earth and under the earth and in the seas, every priceless work of art, every beautiful piece of engineering... Every tree, every mountain, everything of beauty, every sunrise that has ever happened, every star and every planet and every galaxy in the cosmos, and you put all of those things on the scale, his life outweighs them all. His life outweighs them all. His life is a sufficient sacrifice. For you and for me. And if you feel like there is anything in your life, anything in you of sin and brokenness, and you can't imagine that Jesus' sacrifice could be enough for that, I'm telling you of the infinite worth of this life. That he can pay the price for your sin. And he did pay the price for your sin. His grace is sufficient for you. If Jesus is God and his sacrifice is that big and his purity is that pure, then you can utterly depend on him. You can completely depend on that sacrifice for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one can boast. We cannot boast. And if you look at the theological meaning 
of the virgin birth, Wayne Grudem in his commentary just sums it up really simply like this. The virgin birth shows that salvation ultimately must come from the Lord. It is an unmistakable reminder that our salvation can never come through human effort, but must be a supernatural sovereign work of divine grace that could only be accomplished by God himself. We have a gift to receive, and that is the biggest mountain of them all. That is something you can be secure in. That is something that can be solid. That is something that can be asphalian. Securely locked up with guards at the door. You know that God has offered you a gift. We can strive and work. The striving and the working and the serving and the worshiping, those things are beautiful, beautiful as acts of worship, but they are not what earns us salvation. Salvation can only be received through a posture of surrender, through a posture of receiving. Salvation can only be received with open hands. This is a gift that we've been given. To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And for those who believe, those who held and accepted the gift of that Christ child born in the manger, fully God and fully man given for your sins and mine and for all the sins in humanity, you can be confident that you are children of God. And if you've been in that space in your life where you've just been doubting, you just haven't crossed over yet, you just haven't said, man, I I, I can accept this gift. If you've thought maybe there's some sin in your history and in your story that is just too big for God to handle, there's something that you've been too ashamed to confess. You need to come and know that his grace is sufficient for you. You need to come and know that that gift is sufficient. It's big enough. It's pure enough. It's holy enough. He is infinitely able to save you and infinitely passionate to be with you. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Community Church, visit ovchurch.ca.